What business do you have saying, yeah, it, it's got to be true, so I believe it to be true? You know, that's just producing a, a, a fault line that is not only going to commit you to dishonesty in your historical work, and every book of apologetics uh, shows that. Uh, Victor just gave these great examples. Uh, you know, what more do you need, Craig? What more do you need, uh, uh, Gish or D'Souza? How many hundreds of times does this have to be disproven for you to stop using this? Uh, uh, there's this, uh, fundam uh, this is great quote, Tillich says, fundamentalism has demonic aspects in that it splits the conscience of its thoughtful adherents and forces them to repress uh, knowledge of which they are secretly aware. So why is the fundamentalist and the apologist on the war path? It's against himself. Uh, the unbeliever that, that uh, he goes on crusade against is, is in his own mind. Welcome back to the Gnostic Informant, and you are about to attain true Gnosis. And with me is Dr. Bob, two-time PhD, theology, New Testament studies, the Bible geek, Zarathustra speaks, all that, all that and more, and more to come too, more to come too. And uh, we're going to talk about when prophecy fails in the Bible. So... Let's, I'm just going to throw it right over to you, and you can speak on this subject. I'll have some stuff to add. And, of course, Super Chats are greatly appreciated, and we will we will answer those. So, how are you doing today? Fine. Um, whether I'll be doing fine tomorrow, of course, is anybody's guess, unless someone has the gift of prophecy to tell me. <laughs> um, I think that... Um, uh, Clifford Geertz was right that a uh, great uh, sociologist of religion, 
he said that it seems like all religion kind of boils down to uh, not that there's nothing more to it than this, but at bottom, it appears to be uh, an attempt to deal with the difficulties of the world, uh, cognitive difficulties created by um, physical and other uh, problems in the world. Like it, it, religion and mythology provide ways of uh, dealing with ignorance, adversity, and... Um, Oh, um, and uh, evil in the world. Uh, these things shouldn't exist if you are committed to a, a belief about the world that says things are really good and will turn out well because a God who runs the, the whole place with our interests at heart will see to it. Uh, now, I know it doesn't look that way, but here's what to do. Uh, religion posits uh, an unseen, adjacent, larger realm in which, well, to which problems are deferred. Uh, and though we don't really understand it, the answers to our problems lie there. For instance, when um, you know, somebody dies, and you say, oh boy, how, oh, what am I going to do without this person? If only I could see him again. Well, calm down because you will when the role is called up yonder. You'll you'll see them again. So they're not totally lost. So yeah, it's a pain in the neck. Yeah, it's something worth crying over. But uh, like Paul says, I don't want you to be like those without hope. No, no, don't worry. Or you might say, Look at this injustice. Look how these people, the child molesters, persecutors, uh, invaders, seem to get away with murder, and their uh, their um, victims have no chance. They're just cut off. And uh, how is that just? Uh, well, look, uh, it's bad, yes, but don't forget that in the future there will be either a reward in heaven and a punishment in hell, or there will be resurrection and karma will determine what kind of a life you're going to have next time based on what you did this time. Uh, and so on. So the, the unseen adjacent world may be a heaven above or it may be uh, the future lying ahead. Uh, if you can't fathom some particularly uh, tough nut, you can't solve a problem uh, that uh, you think you need to solve, like uh, the Christian creed. I, I am to believe it. I'm supposed to believe it, but I, I just don't get how you can have three persons in the Godhead and they're not three different gods. How, how can that be? Uh, it just sounds like a bad theory, but no, no, uh, you, the, um, once you get to heaven, there'll be a big uh, uh, seminar in theological problems where some uh, angelic professor will say, well, I know you, a lot of you have been asking about this. Here's, here's how it works. And then you'll hear you say, how could I not have seen that? Of course. Or, or a biblical difficulty. Uh, you are shaken up by the possibility the Bible might have contradictions of fact or of belief between the different writers. And, and that's important. That, that's urgent because this is the word of God. 
uh, if, uh, if it contradicts, you won't know what advice to take, what command to follow, and you'd better know because your eternal fate depends on what you do and believe. Uh, well, um, don't worry. Uh, you can shelve that one temporarily because, again, there's that Bible seminar coming up in heaven. And you'll find that, yes, it was as reliable as they told you. You just didn't get some of these things. Like, how uh, could uh, the heavenly voice at the Jordan have said both, this is my beloved son and you are my beloved son at the same time? I don't uh, get that. Well, don't worry. Don't worry. You will. Uh, so you needn't worry about that being a true account of Jesus being uh, inaugurated as the Son of God. One day it'll be explained, and again you'll think, idiot, how could I not have seen that? And and so um, so many things like that are are expedients and excuses. It's like you don't. It's I always think of the. Uh, stupid Academy Awards. You stay up all night to see Best Picture, if anybody still does that. Uh, and uh, suppose they, they said, may I have the envelope, please? And then the guy opens it up and reads it and says, huh, well, what do you know? Well, okay, thanks. I'll see you next year. It, well, wait a minute. What, what was the best picture? Well, uh, you're not going to know that, but rest assured there is one. Like that, well, Okay, I guess that's the best I can do. And you take comfort because if there was no uh, no best picture, that shakes your confidence in the movie industry. What are they all stinkers and none of them deserve it? Uh, you don't want to think that. No, no, no. At least one was deemed good. I mean, that's not important, but it's important to some people. But uh, that uh, I think Geertz is right. You're always uh, taking refuge in an invisible, adjacent, alternative world in which all these things make sense. You know, the uh, tapestry thing, right? I can't see how a, a good God could be ruling this mess of a world. Look at this. Uh, and they said, well, you know, it's like a tapestry. If you look on the side where all the sewing is going on, it's, it's just chaos, uh, stitches of different colors here and there. But if you turn around when it's finished, you turn it around, you see, wow, look at that. Uh, now I see the, the picture. Uh, that's a, a clever analogy, but is there another side? Will there be a time when you see it? It's just that the thought that, well, there must be. Nobody would bother uh, creating a, a tapestry if there weren't. And so that is some comfort. It might be cold comfort. Um, Peter Berger has a great uh, section in the Sacred Canopy about all this kind of thing. Uh, different theodicies, you know, a theodicy is, a, is an explanation uh, justifying God, like getting him off the hook. It looks bad, but it isn't bad. Here's why. Uh, and he said, for instance, uh, there's uh, there are eschatological theodicies. Again, I've been mentioning some of them. You're not going to know now, but don't worry, just hang on. The answer will come. Well, uh, like uh, if, if um, you know, you go through the horrible Holocaust of Hitler, Pol Pot, Stalin, any of these guys, and uh, then you uh, get to heaven and you see people that perpetrated them, uh, are you still going to worry about how could God have allowed this? Who cares? It's over. 
right. and so it doesn't even need to to supply an answer. It, thank God, it's over with. So I think that explains why people believe in prophecy. Uh, they would like security. They know the future is uncertain and it might be dangerous, but they would like to be able to sleep at night. This is the uh, the logic behind people reading the horoscope every day. Somebody, I think, in the UK did a survey of people that said, yeah, I, I read the, the newspaper horoscope every day. Uh, and they said, well, uh, how often would you say it really provides sound guidance, that it prepares you in advance, and when something happens, you said, aha, I was ready. How often? And, and these same people that said, yeah, they always read it, said, well, really, not much of the time. Well, then why the heck do, do they keep reading it? Well, right. the thing is, they're adults. They, they know or they should realize that they've been through uh, hard things in life and challenges. They'll be able to meet it. Chances are uh, when it comes, uh, they're not just muling babies. Uh, but uh, they would like, uh, so the, if they don't really need the forewarning and forearming but they think they do. They think, uh, I, I want to sleep peacefully at night and not worry about what may happen tomorrow. Well, if I read the horoscope, it says this and that, so I'm going to be ready. You don't really need it, but it's just like a sleeping pill. It, it gives you a kind of an illusory teddy bear of, of, of confidence for the future. And I think that's what all prophecy does. You'd like to know that uh, it, it, the world is not going to end in a nuclear conflict between uh, Putin and Biden and, and so forth. Uh, uh, and uh, so uh, if it says the lamb shall lie down with the lion and all this stuff, uh, you say, okay, that, that is hope for the future. I, I, Christ is going to come back. The world's not going to perish in an AIDS plague or a nuclear holocaust oh, it may look bad now but i got confidence well that doesn't prevent any horrible things from happening and what happens when they do when prophecy fails uh, and and let's zero in on good predictions uh christ is coming back soon um the, the world is gonna the clouds will part and a new age will begin uh, Baha'u'llah will usher in the, the kingdom of God, whatever. Uh, Maitreya Buddha is coming back. And it, uh, at first, perhaps you think that's going to be real soon. Oh boy, I can't wait. I, I might not even bother enrolling in college because, you know, what for? The world's coming to an end anyway. I'll be taken care of. Well, it never happens, right? I mean, if you know any of the history of prophecy, for, for hundreds or even thousands of years, it never materializes. So what do you do then? Well, like the horoscope reader, you stick with it. You just start marshalling rationalizations. Well, uh, like in First Peter, yes, admittedly, uh, Jesus didn't come back on schedule. We, we did think it would be almost immediate. It hasn't been. Uh, the first generation's all gone. Uh, but does that mean it was a lie or something? No, no, it just means that God has decided to extend the deadline uh, so more people have time to repent. Uh, yeah, all, all right, all right, I can endure more of the, the bad stuff for, for that reason. Uh, okay. Uh, or you might say uh, that, um, like the, uh, the, uh, 
UFO cult uh, that uh, Leon Festinger and his colleagues studied in the book, When Prophecy Fails, they believed that a, a flying saucer was going to come and take the, the, the believers up and uh, beam them up, I guess, and so on. Uh, but it didn't, and they had the date, but it didn't happen. Well, do, should they say, what a bunch of chumps we were. Now there's a little thing called cognitive dissonance. You let everybody know that, uh, you know, so long, I'm afraid I won't see you on this side of the apocalypse because I'll be up there in the mothership and, you know, zip, zilch, nothing happened. Well, you start, you don't want to face the ridicule. You don't want to have to ridicule yourself and say, what an idiot, how could I have been so stupid? So you say, well, I, I guess there's been a change of plans. Maybe the, and I think what they did say was that the aliens were impressed with our attempts to wake up humanity and get them ready. So they're giving us a reprieve. Uh, or it could be they didn't, they figured we didn't do enough, so they're not going to reward us. So we'll have to redouble our efforts. And uh, it's just like a, a, one of my favorite Saturday Night Live skits back when the show was funny, uh, where um, Kevin <laughs> Nealon plays a father on Christmas morning. His wife and young kids are there, uh, there's the, around the Christmas tree, but there are no presents there. And uh, there are the kids are bawling. The police come because uh, they heard about this from a neighbor, I guess. And they they think uh, the some hooligans must have snuck in here and stolen all the presents. That happens pretty frequently. Uh, and they're asking the dad, um, did you hear anything last night, et cetera, et cetera. And he, he soon comes to the conclusion the dad really believed Santa Claus was going to bring the presents. He, he's stunned at the fact that there aren't any. And so uh, Kevin Nealon's saying to the kids, well, I, I know this has happened a lot. Uh, I guess we just weren't uh, good enough in our behavior. We didn't deserve the presents, but don't worry. You know, there's next Christmas we're going to really uh, buckle down and be good so Santa will... Uh, that's that's the same logic. Uh, we'll we'll have to get even more extreme in our devotions or or whatever, and uh, because you don't want to give up the idea that there is a Santa. No, no, we got to save that at all costs. Yeah. And it's the same thing. You don't want to give up the idea that Jesus is going to come in with the heavenly cavalry and save the day. Oh no, no, I got to believe in that, or I'll despair. So. Uh, I guess I can hold on a bit longer. Uh, whereas, or, or how about this? This is the other major alternative, realized eschatology. After this happens a few times, oh, yeah. you begin to say, maybe we were wrong about how the kingdom of God is coming. Maybe the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Maybe they will not be able to say, look, here it is or there, because the kingdom of God is within you. Well, that's that's happened in the Gospel of John. That's uh, the, what happened with the Baha'i faith and many others. And so they say, well, good news, it did happen. This is the age of Aquarius, uh, but you have to have the eye of faith to see it. And you have to live as though the kingdom is present because it is. Uh, and, and of course, this only works so long. 
right? Th this probably means you're going to uh, embrace some sectarian enthusiasm and really try to clean up your act and maybe give away your money, whatever. Uh, but eventually, you just can't keep that up. And so you, you uh, imperceptibly begin to merge back into the mainstream church or society. And, uh, and the cycle goes over and over because others will see that hey, all you people in the church are worldly. We got to really buckle down. And, and it, it's just an ever repeating cycle. Uh, and uh, th these are two ways of trying to stave off the the terrible realization. Wow, that's a really well way to put it. And I think that's going to be, I think we laid it out now. And I, I want to get to some super chats. I also have some stuff I want to add to what you said. Mm. But I'm hoping maybe these, some of these questions might even provoke, might even get to that. So let's mm. get to the super chats. So this is. I'm trying to I'm trying to dabble into some Greek. I think that's pronounced Iason. Iason. I A S Omega N. Iason. Sobek, Lord of the Four Corners. $1.49 super sticker. I appreciate mm -hmm. you, buddy. I made a post for you today, by the way, on my community tab just for you. I, I was reading through this Egyptian book um, from Adolf Ehrman. It's a scholar from the 19th century. And he drew a picture. He has a he had a, a diagram of all the gods and what they look like. The crocodile god was Sobek. So as soon as I saw that, I thought of him because he's frequently on here. He, he's frequently watching Myth Vision. He's a, a friend of both of our channels. So I thought I made a post for him. Thank you for that. Hmm. Mummy Veil. Vale. The uh, crocodile-headed god, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So hmm. I Sobek, I think there's another name for him, too. There's a whole bunch of different names for the hmm. same type of, you know, like Horus looks a different, has like different names. But anyways... Hmm. Mummy Veil, vale, $9.99. Is there any examples of prophecy that are no longer even possible to be fulfilled, even in the future? That's a good question. Well, any of them that have deadline dates, uh, and, and several have, like in the New Testament. In fact, there are several different deadlines, uh, beginning with... Um, uh, with uh, Mark 13, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. And then later on, once it hasn't, you you got the, uh, there are some standing here who will not taste death, etc. Well, obviously, time has gone by and nothing happened. The Jehovah's Witnesses have set dates, I think, three or four times. Uh, beginning okay. in, I think, 1918. And, and oh, about in the 90s, I remember reading that they said, okay, we've learned our lesson. We do believe Christ is going to come back and probably relatively soon. But, okay, we, we can't uh, set dates anymore. Uh, the, uh, the Mormons implicitly did, because after all, they're called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Right. Uh, so we're we're at the end of the game. The Millerites, right? They had two dates a year apart. Uh, the second one, when the first one failed, and that one failed, and so a lot of people fell away, and others reinterpreted it. Uh, Harold Camping did it twice. Right? He says, as far as the first time, he was sort of judicious. He said, I think I've worked this out from clues in the Bible. I believe it's going to be so and so date. Uh, and uh, it didn't happen. And he said, well, obviously I, I was wrong. I'll go back to the drawing board. And this time 
He said, oh yeah, I got it. And if you don't agree with me, that just shows you don't believe in the Bible. Oh, yeah. oh what a mistake. Well, for, uh, and for, uh, there are many other ones. That, well, that for, forget this. about the Mormons and those guys. The Pope in the year 1000, Pope Sylvester II, literally on the year 1000, it was like a second, his second year in his papacy, he comes out and makes an announcement that the thousand year uh, reign or the thousand year reign is now over. Satan is going to be released from his chains and the end of the world is coming. Revelation is at hand. And I have a whole book about it called, um, called the bad popes. And um, it talks about how people for 30 years were losing their minds and selling all their possessions and moving away. And there was a lot of chaos and insanity happening. This was a big deal. This is a, this is not a light event. This is a big deal mm. and nothing happened, obviously. Mm. So that's a prime example. Um, I actually was going to get Mark nine ready, but you already talked about it. That nobody will, some of you will not taste death till the kingdom of, of God comes with power. So that can't be fulfilled anymore. That's already gone. Uh, and then here's a, here's a really good one. Actually, the Lord or Tyree will never be rebuilt for I, the Lord has spoken. There is a picture of Tyree right now. So Tyree was rebuilt. Actually, Tyree fell and re got rebuilt like eight times after that. Because Alexander the Great came and he knocked the city down and then he rebuilt it again and made it a Greek mm -hmm. city. So it's, Tyre would never be rebuilt. Like, that that you can't that, that can't be fulfilled now. It's already done. So unless they knock it down again and then say, oh, the verse was actually telling the future for another time, it was because he could he, instead of saying it will be rebuilt eight times and then the ninth time it will never be rebuilt again, they'll say, well, now that it's down, that's what they meant in the year 3000 or something. You know what I mean? Because that's what's going to happen. But um, yeah, I thought those are good examples. Uh, I have some more examples like that, but I want to get through some more super chats. Mm -hmm. We can get back to that. Um, let's see. The next one is Myth Vision. Derek, thank you for the $20. My brother he says, showing my love to both my favorites. Love you guys. And I hope more people will support you both in your amazing work. Let's start a super chat. Train, train friends. Thank you, Derek. And um. Just while, while while we're on the subject of uh, of our work, we have a eight series course taught by Doctor Bob. Oh, which way? This way, and um, it's gonna it's well worth it. I did the editing. I threw in some really good visuals. It is awesome. It is it is going to be worth it. It's I'm telling you, this is probably going to be the biggest tool that anyone anyone who who's into the realm of like counter apologetics. This is going to be your secret weapon. Like this is going to be the, the, you know, this is the grenade. Like this is it. And it, so you will hear more about that coming from Derek as well as me. We're both going to promote it. You'll know all about it. You won't miss it. And it's worth it. Just want to throw that out there. Mm. And then we have vaguely agnostic with the 666. In the New Testament, there are several references that return of that that re the return of Jesus was to be in the first century. How can believers today not see it already happened? Good point. Well, one thing they do with the, the book of Revelation, which has Jesus say, uh, I think at least two times, I think three, uh, behold, I am coming soon. Uh, and uh, the apologists say, well, that Greek word uh, really means... Uh, any time or uh, suddenly 
that's not the case. No, they're just redefining it. They try to do the same thing with the Mark 13 thing. They say this generation will not pass away. It's the Greek word genea. And that could mean this race. Uh, but what the heck's the point of that? Is he saying uh, that Jews will not be exterminated before this happens? That, that's an odd thing to say. It doesn't fit into the logic of the uh, the apocalyptic uh, revelation he gives. And uh, or does it mean uh, what this? What does that mean? This generation? Uh, well, maybe he just means this generation, the one we're talking about, who will live to see this. What about them? that'll live to see this. It's just a stupid tautology. I mean, you're not saying anything. Uh, but of course, that's better than what it actually is saying. So that starts sounding pretty good if you're trying to get out of a tight spot. Uh, so they just have a whole arsenal of these things. Or again, uh, maybe uh, it was a, uh, well, they love doing this with pr prophecies. You intimated this before. This is the future, but it's uh, it's another version of the gap theory. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen anytime soon. God may stop the prophetic clock and turn it on again. Who knows, even thousands of years in the future. That just seems like a ludicrous thing. I mean, what what kind of communication is that? It's like you're you're tricking the, your your hearers. It, it, but again, anything looks good if it helps you get out of a tight spot. Yep, that's a that's a fact. Myth Vision again with another two dollars. Thank you. He says eschatology is what screwed me all up, and I think a lot of people can agree with that one. Uh, me too. I, I remember I was taking a course at uh, Princeton Theological Seminary back in the summer of 1977. And uh, I think I was reading Walter Kaufman's great book, The Faith of a Heretic then. And uh, he said that, uh, look, uh, it says Jesus predicted his second coming within his contemporary generation it didn't happen. What are you going to do about it? And I, I remember thinking that is pretty serious stuff. He's right. Uh, how can you rely on anything else he said? Uh, Rymaris, back in the uh, the uh, 18th century, he was a deist, so he did believe in God and so forth, but he, he sure didn't believe in the Bible. And right. he said, uh, look, uh, his his book is still fascinating and cogent today. And he said, um, Jesus said a bunch of things about the invisible heavenly world, what's going to happen at the judgment, what the will of God is, or angels, stuff like that. None of that is verifiable empirically, obviously. I mean, nobody says it is. It's all faith, right? But there's one thing he said that is empirically verifiable or falsifiable, and that's that he would return within the generation and that every eye will see him and so on. He says, there's no way to make that have happened. Uh, whatever else, you know, the one thing that was falsifiable 
was falsified. Why should you believe the rest of it? What kind of a revealer is this if the only revelation he gave that could be checked out doesn't check out? That really shook me. And I think that may have been the beginning of my uh, slide into the hellfire. I couldn't agree more. Fire Savers, thank you for the $10 super chat. I appreciate you. Off topic, but Dr. Price, have you ever read Mark Twain's extract from Captain Stormfield's Visit to Heaven? I have not. I'm sorry to say. I have not, but Mark Twain is a great writer. I'm sure it's uh -huh. really good. I might have to look out for that one. Um, thank you for that. Appreciate it. Jesus Saves, 499. Thank you. How can you say that Daniel wasn't fulfilled 70 year? That it wasn't fulfilled. That wasn't fulfilled. Okay, I know, I know what they're talking about. They're talking about how in Daniel, it says that 70 years Jerusalem will fall. But I, I'm not sure what it says of what. So they're saying that Jesus was born in the year zero. Seventy years later, the temple falls. It's an interesting coincidence. I'm not going to lie, but it doesn't really. It's not. It's so vague. It just says seventy years. Well, Daniel predicted various things that did happen because they happened before he predicted them. Uh, right. The uh, the stage is set in Daniel. Uh, in the midst of the Babylonian exile. And Daniel is actually an, a figure updated from Canaanite mythology where Daniel uh, was a wise judge. Well, they, they put him in a different historical context. Like Ezekiel refers to Job, Dan, Daniel, and somebody else uh, and uh, as wise men. But given when Ezekiel was supposedly written, the guy depicted in the book of Daniel would still have been a kid and wouldn't right. have been an example of wisdom. So there's a hint. What he did was to um, use his, he wrote in about 165 BCE. And uh, it was during the Hasmonean or, or Maccabean rebellion against the Seleucid persecutors. And so he play he speaks as the prophet daniel and says well don't worry uh, it's going to be terrible but they're going to be beat uh, when the the saints of the most high win uh, and then uh, the uh, the kingdom of god will appear and all that well uh, he was right because in his day the seleucids had been expelled but the eternal kingdom did not arrive uh, the the uh, Jewish independent state didn't last but for about a century when they then invited Rome in to settle disputes and they became a client state of Rome. Uh, so this was, you can always tell in apocalypses when they were likely written because uh, the accuracy falls off the cliff at a certain point. That's right. when the writer must actually have started speculating about the future vis-a-vis -vis oh, yeah. his day. And so Daniel was written in the second century BCE, not in the Babylonian exile, right. as the vocabulary, the state of the Hebrew language, uh, and uh, the use of certain words like the Chaldeans and so on. Uh, a lot of things attest Darius that. the Mede, who was not a Mede, he was a Persian. Yeah, he was. There was a Darius, there was a Darius, but he was a Persian, not, yeah. not a well, Mede, and so forth. Well, I, did, and, I did a couple of videos on this very subject, and it's clear that this person was writing as if he was in the past but really was in the future he's getting things wrong about the past which he's supposed to live which he's supposed to be in getting stuff pinpoint right about the period that he's talking about 
the Maccabean yeah. period, like you said. Now the 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 super chatters is is ignoring all that, doesn't care. He's talking about uh, Daniel nine, where he says, "In the first year of his reign, I Daniel tried to understand the scriptures, the counting of the years of which the Lord spoke to the prophet Jeremiah, that the ruins of Jerusalem seventy years must be fulfilled." So this is what Christians are doing now. They're repurposing this this prophecy, mm-hmm. make it for Christianity, and saying because Jesus was born in the year zero, that means he was the Messiah because Jerusalem fell in seventy. But you're forgetting a major, major thing right here. The dating of Jesus' birth was done later by the church to make it 70 years. He was either born in 4 BC or 6 AD. So that's where where it's, you can't, you can't, it's impossible that he's born in year zero. So if either, so it doesn't make sense because either God's wrong, gets his dates wrong. And we're just like, ah, close enough. But it's like, is that how scripture is supposed to work? Close enough? Like, it doesn't make sense. It falls apart. But it is interesting that the guy who you think is the Messiah, who be claimed to be the Messiah, was born close around 70 years before the fall of Jerusalem. To me, that's exa- that's an example of why people thought he was the Messiah after he was dead and gone. That could be one of the big reasons. But it also doesn't, it doesn't make Daniel fulfilled. It just means, look, there's a part of Daniel that says 70 years. Let's make Let's say he was born in the year zero. It's one of those examples, if that makes sense. Well, so. also, um, Daniel has to apply an esoteric um, hermeneutic to to uh, Jeremiah. He has to uh, interpret it figuratively. 70 years, I bet he means 70 weeks of years or 490 years. Uh, Daniel certainly didn't have, I mean, sorry, uh, Jeremiah certainly isn't talking about that. Now, what he may, what Daniel probably was doing was what the Dead Sea Scrolls authors and Matthew did using a Pesher technique, treating the text of the Bible as if it were a puzzle. And you're saying, yeah, I, I know what it originally meant, but I bet the Holy Spirit had encrypted another message for those who will live in a later time and can recognize it as a prophecy after the fact once it happens. So we won't know what to look for, but once it happens, we'll say, son of a gun, right. that was predicted. And then you and, uh, So that's dubious. Nobody would, I mean, if you're invoking that, as proof from prophecy, you just don't understand what prophecy was. Right. Uh, it was sort of like the Bible code that was big in the 90s. And uh, on and on it goes. Uh, I'm surprised he didn't mention the business about the Messiah being cut off. Right. Uh, they say, oh, that's that's Jesus the Christ. No, no, it's Onias the third, the high priest executed by the Seleucids. The date is right for that because right. it was contemporary with the author. And this is exactly what I was trying to get at, is that Daniel is prophesizing the events that's happening in the Seleucus period. And what happens is later on, after Jesus comes and goes and he dies and Jerusalem falls, the church repurposes Daniel and they plug and play all the numbers that fit and disregard everything that doesn't make sense. Mm. So you, what you have is like you have like a soup of like, hey, 70 years over here. Let's say that's, you know, and like and then ignore all the 70 weeks and all the other stuff that was that was actually literally talking about the Seleucids period and just bring in all the good stuff and cut off all the fat. That's what they're doing. So 
it's 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 one of those examples of you can just plug and play the numbers. There's so much in the Old Testament that you can borrow from, and you can apply. You can make anyone the Messiah. You could you could make Ju- Judas the Galilean could have been the Messiah. They would have fu- figured out a way if they wanted to. In fact, the idea of Jesus being born at the right time, uh, Sabbatai Sevilla in the 17th century was born on the 9th of Av, the, the day commemorating the destruction of the temple. And there were traditions that the Messiah would be born on that day. Was Sabbatai Sevilla the Messiah? Right. There's a lot of people born on every day. And as Pilate once said, you Jews produce messiahs by the sackful. There must have been loads of guys like there are today if you go visit Jerusalem, uh, right. like Speaker's Corner with all the different messiahs there. So it it just, this is a non-historical way of reading the text. Right, especially in the fact that he's born in 4 BC, not zero. But anyways, mm. John, Ge- John Gear, I love hearing Dr. Bob Muse worth every penny. I appreciate the super chat and you're absolutely correct about that. Uh, let's go to the next one. Melody Joy, I appreciate the super sticker. You can always ask a question if you want. You know, you can always you can always butt in. But I appreciate you. Thank you. You're you're the best. Um Samantha Dejerins, Dejerdens, uh, what are some prime examples of prophecy in scripture that hasn't happened yet? Well, we sort of talked about a little bit of it, but I think we have some more examples um that hasn't happened yet. I got actually I'm glad she asked that. Do you have anything you want to say real quick? Well, of course, the biggie is the uh, the return of Jesus. Uh, that <laughs> that's not happened. It's difficult to say with some of the others because they're so ambiguous, which may be a kind of strategic thing, like the Oracle at Delphi. She spoke enigmatically and equivocally. So um, some general goes to her and says, uh, "What uh, should I uh, engage in battle?" Uh, and she says, if you do, a mighty empire will fall today. Well, she didn't have to say which one. Right. Uh, he, he went his way thinking, oh, boy, it's, I'm going to win. Hey, hold yeah. on. She didn't exactly say that. So uh, ambiguity serves to, to save the, the, uh, the face of the, the prophet. But that's one of them. And uh, she also told um, Philip of Macedon that the bowl is ready. The sacrificer is coming. And I think that he thought, he thought that something else was like, he thought the, um, he thought this was like a good omen. Like the, the the bowl is ready. The sacrifice is made. He thought this was a good omen that he thinks he's talking about Persia. Mm-hmm. Darius being, being the bowl, but mm-hmm. he was the bowl and he got mm-hmm. killed that day. Supposedly. I mean, who knows how accurate that story is, but that's how, mm-hmm. That's how uh, Philip of Macedon was prophesied to die, but um, but like you said, it was so vague. It was like a Nostradamus, like, mm. well, a bird's gonna fly into a tree. Nine yeah. Eleven, look. But um, but here, here is the prime. I I, I want to get this. I really wanted to get to this. Um, this is a huge one. This one cannot be ignored. The land promised to Abraham incorporated more. Look, so this is actually a lib or a. This is actually a conservative map because look, if you actually look at what it says, it says on that same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your sons, I've given this land from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates. And there's also other verses in Exodus where they say that it'll go all the way up to the land of the Hittites, which is Turkey. 
So the really the map looks like this. Mm. I mean, look, you got the Nile River, just like it says, from the river of, the, of Egypt, that's the Nile River, right? To the river Euphrates, up to the land of the Hittites. That's the, the promised land of Israel. Has there ever been an Israel that big? Uh, no, uh, some people say, by the way, that uh, it may not intend the Nile. That may be a reference to the Wadi El Arish, so that which would be apparently was sometimes called the, the River of Egypt. But it doesn't make much difference. You're still talking about a huge mega uh, yeah, that's why, Israel. That's why I gave him this map, too, because conservatively, you'd say it's this. All right, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Let's say they didn't mean the Nile River, but you'd still have to go to the Euphrates. And you still mm -hmm. have to have so it's either way you're talking about promised land that clearly is not fulfilled and he says that's his promise he says i promise this the lord has mm. promised this i mean that's like well i thought the, does the lord go back on his promises is he a liar standing Literally. on the promises surprised my king except <laughs> that one right yeah well i, I actually do around 12 it's on the, it's on the thumbnail God shall enlarge your border as he has promised you. He's telling that to uh, um, Joshua. And it's like, what, when is this happening? Does this, does mm. this happen? And instead, the opposite happened. They lose their land for, what, 2,000 years almost? They lose their nation. And they get brought mm. back, not by not through like some, some, they get brought back by Gentiles bringing them back. They get brought back. So it's like a Cyrus type of deal again, mm. I guess. That's what, they, that's what a lot of Jews will, will say. It's, oh, King Cyrus did it, so... Why can't the UN do it? It's like, okay, fine. But um, but yeah, that's another example. And uh, the another one I wanted to talk about was this one. Uh well, no, that's 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 not the one. This is talking about what we just said. The big one that I wanted to get to is Revelation. So Revelation talks about the seven churches, right? And some of them are good, some of them are bad, some of them are hot, some of them are cold, some are in the middle. And he kind of warns them on if you act up, I'll get rid of you, I'll send whatever. But to the church in Philadelphia, he says something different. He says, these are the words of him that is holy and true. He'll, he who holds the key to David, what he opens, no one can shut to the church of Philadelphia. He's talking about, I know your deeds. I have placed you before an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews. They are not. They are liars. I will come. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I love you. Now, where is that church right now? Gone. Islam. Islam is what happened to it. The Muslims came in, they conquered all of Turkey, and they, they turned all the churches in, in a mosque or the burden of the ground. And this church was one of them. So you're telling me that the, in Revelation, he handpicks his favorite, one of his favorite churches and says, nobody... He says that nobody will be able to shut your door, but that church is gone now. Well, there's a little bit of ambiguity, I'd say, about what it means about the, the open door. Is that an open door of opportunity? I'm not sure what the uh, phrase was taken to mean. Is it a reference to the door open in heaven through which uh, the seer ascends? Uh, I, I'm not sure, but I, I'd have to say that is vague enough that it might just envision the current suffering and situation of that church. But 
who knows? I mean, it must have some specific reference that uh, the original readers understood, but I'm not sure I uh, get it. No, I, I agree. And that, I think that, that's the point of these prophecies, these promises that you see in the scripture. They sort of have to be that way because if, if, if for example, nobody, no, no prophet's ever going to write down in the year 800, in the month of March, on the 17th day, God's going to do this because they know that's not going to happen. So they have to be vague. They have to make things open for interpretation because then you can always fall back and say, it didn't mean that it meant something else. So I think that's, um, but yeah, I, I, I would agree with you on that. I mean, you know, it is what it is. Robert Herring says nothing. It's super sticker. Thank you. $5. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, let's keep going. Festering Boils 499 says, if Jesus died on a different day, according to John's gospel, but still resurrected on the Sabbath, doesn't that affect the three days and three nights prophecy? Well, uh, yeah, but there's an, uh, a problem that's bigger than that. And that uh, sometimes we read in the New Testament that he rose on the third day sometimes after three days or even three days and three nights. So it, it's not really consistent. And uh, I, my uh, little theory as to how come we, we've got those different estimates is that one is based on, I think, a passage in, oh boy, it's either Amos or Hosea, uh, where it says uh, God will punish us, etc. but on the third day he will raise us up. And right. that this was taken as one of these pressure things, whereas I, I suspect the influence of the mystery religion of Attis uh, for the other one, because after three days uh, of being entombed, Attis comes back to life and comes out of the, the tomb. And yeah. I have a hunch that that both of those were appropriated and they just and, left them unresolved, especially and, since there is no canonical gospel which actually shows jesus rising in the right. gospel of peter you see that but amazingly there's no such scene narrated in any gospel so and did they really know exactly how long have the tomb been empty and i think another thing to add to what you just said is attis was also was, was is seen as sort of a phrygian version of tamos uh -huh. And um, Tamos, in the in the anonymous, is down in hell, and now descends for three days. Specifically, says three days in the mm -hmm. cuneiform. And and by the way, when I bring this up, people don't realize how profound this is. They didn't they didn't decode the cuneiform till 18th century. So mm -hmm. for thousands of years, nobody knew that there was a myth of a not. Well, people knew about it, I guess, but like nobody could, could confirm that they had like physical evidence that Inanna descended down for three days. And then until that cuneiform was decoded, now we know, now we can look at it and touch with our hands, Inanna descended down into hell for three days and resurrects the dead with her, with when she saves Tamos, who's uh, just like where they get this, you know, the same type of character. But anyways, long story short is, to add to what you're saying, why wouldn't they just be borrowing from this sort of agricultural three-day thing? That's what it mm. seems like. Mm. Yeah, ultimately it boils down to that. Yeah, I mean, or, or your other, your only way around it, if you're, 
if you want to go with like the if you want to say this is some sort of like divine prophetic thing your only other option is to be a pantheist and say well the anana myth was divinely inspired too and they're all they're all divinely inspired they're all pointing to jesus it's like your only other option right well, yes, C.S. Lewis was open to that. Yeah. He didn't favor the satanic counterfeit and advance theory. Uh, he went with something I think uh, John Chrysostom and others in the early church said, which is just what you did, that it was sort of a Jungian approach, that uh, God inspired the, these myths uh, because it was a kind of a signal to uh, suffering humanity, don't worry, uh, a dying and resurrecting savior will come one day but but that seem that only makes sense in retrospect and in another sense too because that is not an apologetical argument that is the christian uh spin on the fact that there were these pre-christian dying and rising god myths if you say that it presupposes you're a christian Right. that you're looking at it from the well given christianity is true how would you explain this whereas uh at least the satanic counterfeit thing was uh an attempt to uh rationalize it in a in a defensive way to non-christians it's just like the prophecy thing when people say oh matthew must have been written for gentiles because he's trying to show them that look jesus fulfilled these prophecies you got to believe in them that's not what he was doing. He was doing what the Dead Sea Scrolls people did. He's writing to Christians right. saying, look, from our standpoint, we can now see prophecies that were hidden in the Bible all along that no unbeliever could ever recognize. But if you're a Christian, you can see it that way. They weren't saying like how Lindsay does that. Uh, here's the prophecy. Here's the fulfillment. That's just ignorance. Uh, understandable ignorance because it was only recently that we have understood the whole Pesher thing. But nonetheless, they ought to stop using that. And by the way, that's Justin Martyr, who's the one mm -hmm. who said this is only, this is early as the middle of the second century. Mm. This is going back to the beginning of all Christianity, pretty much. And he's saying all these other myths are copiers because the demons did it. He's, he's that's what he's saying. And um, and and on the on the flip side of that, you got people like the Nazi preacher who embraces it all. He's kind of a pantheist. He's mm -hmm. uh, he's. The Phrygians called you Addis, the, the Egyptians called you Osiris, and you're Jesus, and it's all the same thing. That's what he basically, mm -hmm. obviously he's a heretic in the minds of the church, but mm -hmm. it shows you people thought this way already in that, mm -hmm. early, that early on. Um, Doc Pleroma, oh, I'm sorry, I missed one. JM, thank you for the $5 super sticker, or whatever that is, blank. I appreciate you. Uh, yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. I really do appreciate everybody mm -hmm. so far. Um, Doc Paroma, not good friend, suffering servant disapproved in one verse, Isaiah 53, eight for the transgression of my people, them, lachom, lachom, that's how you pronounce it, which is them. That, that's, that's what the word is stricken. And it's, he's right. That verse in, in the, in the, um, in the Masoretic text is them. The rest of them do say he though. It's not like all of them say them. There's only, that is the one that says them. But that is such a good point because before that, in Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 47, he says, Israel, my servant. 
So as soon as he estab- as soon as Isaiah establishes that Israel is the servant, he takes the plural of Israel and makes it singular. And from then forward, he only has to say he. Hmm. So, so he's talking about Israel as one person, but he already established in the chapter before that that Israel is the servant. So he does, and and in, but Doc Perlman not points out a really important thing that in this particular verse, the, they actually use the, the term Lahem, which is them. So you're right. He's right. Yeah, there's a lot of room for debate over who the servant is supposed to be and if it's the same in all of the so-called servant songs, of which there are five, six, or seven, depending on how you read them. Uh, and uh, it's very plausible to say that this is about the uh, leadership of Israel, the, the only ones that were taken away in the exile. Uh, unlike what I think I heard in Sunday school, they didn't depopulate uh, Judah. They just took the leaders along uh, with them into exile. And uh, once they were about to come back uh, uh, because of Cyrus, this would have been written saying uh, that everybody thought it must have been the fault of the leaders of Israel that God was so ticked off and sicked the Babylonians on them. But now they'll see that we were just bearing the sins of the people. It was their fault, not ours. We suffered for your sins. Uh, that That's very cogent. That could easily mean that. Another good interpretation, though, that fits into the context uh, was that the servant is that this is part of the renewal of the monarchy ritual every uh, New Year's festival that uh, the the king is the sin bearer for the people and it's their sins that had caused nature to run out of gas at the end of the year uh, and that uh, he would now be ritually humiliated the the high priest would knock the crown off his head tweak his ears and slap him in the face. And uh, he would then um, uh, confess, I guess, the nation's sins and be restored to honor and ascend the steps of the temple, go inside and read the heavenly tablets of destiny and be uh, equipped for another year of service as the king. And this is about the king as the sin bearer, the sacred king. Uh, which does make it kind of about Jesus, since New Testament Christology matches amazingly well with the old sacred king myth, which had been kind of suppressed in Judaism by the time of the New Testament, but still on display in the Bible. Yeah, and I just wanted to, um, I also wanted to show the people that how earlier in the in the book of Isaiah, He's this is just one out of many where he he's literally telling you Israel are my servant Jacob who I've chosen and mm -hmm. um so yeah I think I think it's important when you're trying to find out who the servant is whether you agree with that or not whether you, like like you pointed out there's a lot of different theories on this mm -hmm. the important thing is you should read the whole book and then decide instead of just picking out verse yeah. 58 that's how you get mm -hmm. the context of certain things but um but yeah that's 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 what I would say mm -hmm. uh, the next one, Iason Sobek, Lord of the Four Corners. Dr. Price, speaking of eschatology, can you speak about the concept in regards to how Tillich and Boltman saw it? Uh, well, they 
um, believed in a kind of realized eschatology, uh, um, Bultmann, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, says that he recognizes that the original draft of it must have been Gnostic. Uh, and uh, one token of that is that there are still unerased um, references to realized eschatology, for in, but that they have been kind of overwritten by early Catholic redactors or editors. And they're, uh, they're like a Oh, uh, a few, uh, three uh, very important instances I can think of. One of them was when Jesus first says, uh, the hour is coming and now is when uh, the they will hear the voice of the Son of Man and those who hear will live. Uh, now is? Uh, well, a few verses down, somebody decided to correct that because it now says, uh, this is a second verse to make you think maybe I didn't understand the earlier one. It says, uh, don't be surprised at this for the hour is coming and it does not say and now is when the, when the dead in their graves will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now we're talking about the rotting dead, not the spiritually dead. And so they're going to have to come out of the tombs, literally. And it's not happening now. So somebody has restored end times uh, imagery. Then in chapter 11 with Lazarus, um, he's dead, and uh, his sister comes up to Jesus and said, well, if you'd have gotten here a little sooner, my brother would still be alive. And uh, Jesus says, um, uh, I am the resurrection. Whoever believes in me, though he be dead, yet shall he live. And whoever believes in me uh, will never and lives will never die. Um, oh, yeah, she, he says, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm forgetting this. Um, uh, he says, your brother will rise. And she says, oh, yeah, I know he'll rise in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus counters, I am the resurrection, right. uh, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, you don't have to wait. And of course, in general, that's talking about um, the spiritual resurrection now. Uh, but uh, But anybody can do that now, according to the previous saying. There's one where he says, uh, whoever hears my words and believes on him who sent me will not come to judgment, but has passed from death to life. What? No future final judgment? No, we're taking care of it now. And then at the Last Supper, uh, Jesus is saying that I and my father will dwell with you and in you and all that stuff. And Philip or somebody says to him, uh, Lord, how is it you're going to reveal yourself to us only and not to the world? Uh, and, and then he just sort of backpedals and says the same thing over again. Uh, but the point is, what, what's happened here? I, I thought every eye will see him. That That's not going to happen. No, just you. 
and you'll see it with the inner eye. Like uh, th this is a pattern you just cannot ignore. Uh, and uh, but somebody tried to override it by saying, "Oh no, no, there'll there'll be a resurrection and a judgment at the end." Well, Bultmann took this to say, you know, this Gnostic thing that that is really closer to the intent of Jesus, who said that basically. Uh, we stand before God now, and we face his judgment now. Now is the time to repent. That doesn't need to be a final judgment of the future. Don't you see? It's right now. What are you going to do? Very Heideggerian. Uh, and so he he demythol he thought John had already demythologized it. He says the same wow. for Paul, uh, and uh, that that is remarkably close to existentialist uh, philosophy. With Tillich, he he and and Reinhold Niebuhr, they both said the idea of an end time resurrection and all of that is mythology but it is trying to characterize the world we live in as having a particular goal. And for Christians, it's defined by Jesus and what he said and did. Will there actually be the trumpet blast? No, no. Uh, but uh, we still need this regulatory idea. For Christians, this is what history is about. This is where history is going. It's our job to get it there. And... Um, so, uh, and, and Tillich said, for all we know, the historical continuum of Christianity may uh, one day be defunct. We, we can't address what may happen after that, but our epoch of history is determined and defined by Jesus as the Christ. And I just got a question real quick on this before we go to the next one. Is the, I am the resurrection, when he says that, you know, he says, I am the resurrection. Is that in line with the so-called heresy of Hymenaeus and Philetus? Who yeah, I think so. Uh, those who say the resurrection has already happened. I, I think that is correct. I'm not sure if the pastoral author understands what the Gnostics were saying, but this is also what underlies 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, where who why are these Christians denying that there'll be an end time resurrection because they're skeptics? The writer seems Paul, whoever seems to assume that as if there's no afterlife in their view. But no, uh, if wow. they believe what he says about the spiritual body. Uh, yeah. And that's going to become real clear in Colossians, where it actually says, if then you are risen with Christ, seek ye the things that are above. In other words, it's happened. In baptism, you are raised from the dead. And that's what the Gnostics thought. They didn't think there wouldn't be one. It had already happened to you. Right. Yep. Attain Gnosis. Now, uh, S. Duck, 499, which book of Dr. Price's would he, he recommend that I buy first? I'm a huge fan. This is a good question. Everybody pay attention to this. Dr. Bob, for everyone who's watching, the 120 people who, who are thinking about buying a book from you, what do you recommend first? It might be um, the case against the case for Christ. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. I would say because uh, there I'm replying to all the idiotic misstatements in uh, what's his name, uh, the case for Christ, yeah, uh, Lee Strobel. So it's intentionally on an introductory level, but it does deal with complexities since he does in his apologetic choir. 
right uh, and uh, oh and one that's that's more about theology is a new one of mine called merely christianity yeah uh, so the one is apologetics the other is theology and then if you want to make it a holy trinity judaizing jesus is up there i'd say yeah that's that's a goody i think yeah okay well welka thank you for the five dollars he says jesus brought me here hallelujah i say hallelujah right back and thank you jesus for bringing welka here appreciate the five dollar super chat who can i get a witness yeah <laughs> oh let's see is that the last one there might be one more maybe not let me see we're gonna find out oh here we go margaret del de velden margaret de velden uh, if the author of Mark wrote after Jesus' ascension, wouldn't the author know the prophecy was already failed before it was made? I'm confused. Or am I confused? Sorry, get that right. If the author of Mark wrote after the Jesus' ascension, wouldn't the author know that the prophecy... Oh, this is actually an interesting question, because well, first of all, you have to establish when was Mark written. Mark's mm -hmm. the first gospel. He okay, so if Mark's written, what what do you think? Is it before seventy? Is it? I think Mark's. I think it's right? probably uh, something like hundred and thirty. Wow, and that's a good point then. So if okay, let's say, let's go with that for the sake of argument. Mark's written in the one hundred and thirty. Let's say it is. However, Mark's not claiming to be written that time. Mark's trying to say he's been he's writing in the time period of Jesus. But the point is, doesn't the writer know that the everyone's dead and gone and Jesus never came back. Oh yeah. I think so because uh, of all of these delaying tactics in Mark's gospel, not all of which are Mark's own work, uh, but he, he put some of them in, but it's pretty clear. You've got attempts to mitigate these embarrassing failed prophecies like in first I'm sorry, chapter 13 of Mark, he says this generation will not pass away before all these things have happened. It's just like the fig tree when it bears its fruit. There is no way you're going to have to wait very long for summer. Uh, this is the signal. You know it's at the door. And so when you see these things happen, you know it's about to happen. But then immediately he says, but as to that day and hour, nobody knows, not even me, etc. That, I guess, literally, you could harmonize those. I can't tell you the exact calendar date, but that somehow seems beside the point to me anyway. It seems to be trying to mitigate what was just said. On the other hand, nobody really knows. But then you look back up there into the earlier verses of Mark 13, and you have uh, Jesus say they're going to be rumors of war and pestilence and all that. But don't worry, the end is not yet. It's like you would think, you know, what is the point of these things if they're not signs of the end? But uh, no, they, they don't herald the end. And then a little bit later, he says, and first the gospel has to be preached to all the nations. How the heck long is that supposed to take? It seems like somebody is uh, adding things. Well, this hasn't happened yet. In fact, it's just like Second Thessalonians. You know how First Thessalonians seems to encourage 
an any moment expectation of, of the parousia, the coming of Christ. And then in uh, in Second Thessalonians, it says, I don't know where you get in this, maybe a forged letter with my name on it, but uh, it's not that close. Don't you realize several things have to happen before Christ comes back and he lists them, the, the man of sin and the great falling away and all this stuff. Well, it's obvious that the second one is the forged. Uh, somebody's trying to get Paul out of a tight spot. Uh, oh, it's uh, he's trying to throw cold water on it. Uh, it's it's not going to happen that quick because you know there's a you know a whole raft of things that have to happen first. That's very different than what First Thessalonians said. And in the same way, someone is making Mark be like the Second Thessalonians, say, "Whoa, hold on there." Uh, and and not only that, it goes into like Mark also has um, another announcement uh, in uh, it's at the either the end of chapter eight or the beginning of nine. He says there's some standing here who will not taste death until they yeah. see the kingdom of God having come with power. That's uh, that certainly has to mean the parousia, the, the rapture, the whole meal, the whole business, right? But why only some? Well, right. because uh, by the time that was added, a bunch, most of the generation was dead. Uh, and so, well, only some. But then that didn't work out either because the whole apostolic generation was dead by that time. And so Mark has to come up with something that Jesus' contemporaries could have seen, uh, but uh, hmm, only some of them. Now, why would that be? Well, maybe he took the three up to the mountaintop and left the others for whatever reason uh, down below, and they saw him transfigured. What the heck? It's not the end of the world, but it ain't bad. Uh, and and so in, in the rest of the New Testament, you have one after another a, attempt to explain why no second coming. Uh, John 21, First uh, Peter. And it seems to me several of those things have happened to the Gospel of Mark, implying several delays. So I put it in the second century. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Uh, is William Arnon's at five dollars? I appreciate that. Isn't the real danger to Christian denominations that believe in the end time prophecy not the failure of forecasts, but rather the giving up on such hopes? Um, you, I, as he, I think he's saying like maybe somebody might lose it and say I'm going to be the instrument of God that's going to spark off the end times and I'll do it. I'll spark the bomb off or something like that. That could be a well, danger. Uh, there have been people that tried to do that, but I'm I'm getting the impression he means the lesson. Uh, okay, it's important to stop making a fool of yourself by coming up with these deadlines that never pan out. But the real danger is not the embarrassment, but that people having seen so many embarrassments will say. Ah, I'm giving up. There's never going to be any second coming. Uh, and that that would be a bigger mistake. Uh, you would lose hope or or you wouldn't be ready for it in case it should happen. Um, I, uh, I personally think that it would be a good thing to uh, to to come to that conclusion and to say, well, look, this is the world we live in. This these are the hands we're given, like in the uh, Genesis song. Uh, um, 
was a land of confusion. Yeah. It'd be better to uh, just grow up and forget that the cavalry is not going to come over the hill. Yep. Doc Perromanat, thank you once again. You are the best. You like always, always coming through. Appreciate you. Does the vagueness of rank raglan scales have the ability to truly address that it's the mythic archetype and its psychological meaning that matters versus the question of historicity of heroes? Like, why do we continue to, to create heroes and demigods and uh, epic champions and so on? Well, uh, they are guides to life. In the first instance, I think Vladimir Prop was likely right um, in his book, The Morphology of the Folktale, where he says that, look at the structure of these stories. The equilibrium is upset. Something has gone wrong. And the hero has to go and try to set it right. At first, he is uh, knocked back and fails. But then some help appears. A donor character gives him the magic sword or the knowledge he needs or trains him or whatever. And with this help, the hero goes on to fight the dragon or the wizard or whatever, and uh, and then restores the the uh, everything's copacetic. You can fill in all the blanks differently, but that seems to be the basic outline. And Prop said that uh, originally this was coaching young men not to give up in their pursuit of of a wife. That the the um, the challenge is to overcome the opposition of uh, your girlfriend's father who may oppose the marriage. He doesn't want to lose his daughter, but you've got to show yourself worthy and thus defeat his uh, hesitations. Now, of course, uh, Joseph Campbell says, well, it's wider than that, too. It's really about all the challenges you face in life. Uh, you've got to got to expect um, setbacks, but you've got to be willing to accept help from someone wiser than you, and you got to have the courage to continue on to succeed professionally, uh, to uh, see succeed athletically, uh, to learn the things you want to learn, uh, whatever it is, and, and triumph. It's not going to be easy, and you will be the hero if you accomplish your goal. And these myths are trying to tell you that, well, I could be um, Superman. I could be Theseus or Hercules or Frodo. Uh, uh, surely that's the point. I mean, Tolkien is telling you that by the otherwise superfluous appendix to the Lord of the Rings. They've yeah. defeated Sauron, this Antichrist character who's about to plunge the world into disaster and doom. And they come back finally to the Shire and see a bunch of block-headed civil servants are trying to uh, uh, disrupt it and make it ugly and modern and all that. And they have to defeat that. Why is that even on there? They didn't include it in the movie, understandably. But it has to be that Tolkien is saying, 
you're probably not going to have to face anything on the scale of Sauron and the, the Death Riders and all that. But that is the, the long shadow cast by what you are going to have to do to take on the responsibility to defeat the idiots and the bad guys on the humble level at which you exist, which I exist. I mean, he was, a you know, a Tweedy professor uh, yeah. that you know, he, he wasn't Aragorn, but in a way he was. In a way, everybody is. And that's what but I think, John. That's what I think John was getting at when he talks about the logos being pre-existent. The, this the logos is the main character who you want to be the role model to teach whatever truth that you're trying to that you're trying to get some sort of truth across, mm-hmm. and you have the logos enact that within the story. So the mm. logos can be like today, today we have movies, we have Star Wars, we have all these great movies and they teach us lessons about life. It's the same thing as scripture. It's just mm. modernizing people don't actually think they're going to go to hell. If they don't believe it. That's mm. the big difference, which I think is a healthy difference. Mm-hmm. Mr. Monster says five dollars for five dollars. It says, what's the best way to debunk the prophecies of Daniel nine through 12? We did talk about this earlier. This is, this is the vision of the Hellenistic Wars where he pinpoints that three kings of Persia and then Alexander the Great is going to be the, the king of Greece and gets it all perfectly right. But obviously it's written after that. Um, I, but I want to say this real quick because I had uh, I had some extra time to talk about this. Joshua Bowen, one of them, and he points out that the Aramaic that's used in the in the uh, in the in the Daniel, you can tell the language is way you could tell. It's like it, it, let's give you an example. If you examine someone's writing from today. We have like, like we have like a lot of words that are like modern, like that's it's. Whereas like two hundred years ago, it, it'd be like you wouldn't see those type of words. It'd be it is, or mm-hmm. I'm using a, re- a really dumb example, but like the the way the English is compared to the English back then is different. Clearly, where you mm-hmm. can do the same examination from the Hebrew of the second century BC compared to the fifth century BC, and you can tell when mm-hmm. it was written. That's mm-hmm. one of the ways. The other ways is that Daniel's getting things wrong from his life. But we did talk about this earlier, but yeah. Yeah, if you look at, I did this book called Secret Scrolls, where I examined over 40 novels about people discovering a lost gospel or the skeleton of Jesus, usually the the latter, sometimes both. And uh, they'll they'll produce the, the discovered text and most of the time, it seemed to me, the author had no sense for how an ancient person would have written. Uh, and uh, occasionally they do. And that's one thing you got to say for the Book of Mormon. Uh, Joseph Smith, who I, I think was the true author, at least he knew what it would sound like, how it would read. Uh, I think his big mistake was that he has way too much of it. I mean, he's way too wordy, uh, and uh, given the the process of uh, you know cutting words into metal plates, who would have the time to do that? But the style, he understood that you had to make it sound ancient, and and that made would make no sense if everybody always had written the same way, even in the same language. You can tell. Yeah, it's a good point. Um. Let's see what we got. I think we're getting close to the end. That might be the last one. Yep, that was the last one. And um, this has been, I mean, anything you want to add to what we, we already talked about? 
Uh, well, I think prophecies are best taken as paradigms. Uh, Jacob Neusner made this very clear that when you look at what's going on today and, uh, and you see like forced vaccination, for instance, a fundamentalist might say, oh, this is taking the mark of the beast. This is what Revelation was predicting. No, it wasn't. <laughs> but you're cheating yourself by taking that approach. The thing is, this reminds you strikingly of what's going on in the book of Revelation. And you better take a second look at it. It's the same kind of thing. Was Hitler literally the Antichrist? Well, no, not in the sense that John had him in mind, but he sure was an antichrist. And these paradigms, it's like the Bible contains them to make it possible for us to discern the signs of the times, as Jesus says. Wait a minute, this looks unpleasantly familiar. Have I seen something like this before? Oh, yeah, the principalities and powers that rule the world for evil uh, and so on. You think, yeah, what should be my attitude? Am I going to just passively cooperate with this or am I going to somehow stick up for what I believe? Uh, that's the relevance of prophecy, and it is important. I don't laugh it off. It's just not clairvoyant predictions. Oh, what do you know? Gene Dixon predicted JFK's death. Oh, isn't that interesting? Yeah, so's the abominable snowman, but it doesn't actually make any difference. Uh, whereas what Rabbi Neusner said about the Bible, that makes a difference. It enables you to, to take a look at the world events that you, you might not have realized before. Yeah, that's a good way to sum it up. Um, yeah, everybody who's watching, like I always say, you, actually, hold on, let me get the outro ready for a second. There it goes. You have just attained true gnosis. You have just attained true gnosis. The demiurge has no power over it.